and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. We've been in a series in Isaiah, and we come to Isaiah 44, and it's really a familiar topic for us, which is idolatry. We've talked about idolatry several times. That was one of the main problems in ancient Israel, still a big problem. In our own day, in fact, the first mention of idolatry, you got to go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 8. We read this, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. And now we see the completion of that in Isaiah 44. And so you'll hear echoes of Isaiah 2, 8. And this is still an issue as we'll see. So you're going to hear a few introductory verses extolling how awesome God is. You'll hear this narrative that is meant to be somewhat absurd, and then you'll hear a concluding two verses. So follow along with me as I read Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it 
an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to this text, let us catch a sense of the foolishness of idolatry, our own idolatry, and let us catch a sense, and let us apprehend the wonder of your mercy and grace in the gospel and your love for sinners, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Back in 2008, I planted about five or six trees at the house we were living in at a time, and you know, that was a drought year in Bernie, another drought year in Bernie, and how we need to pray for rain, maybe this week. But planted these trees in the spring, and the weather didn't cooperate, and they weren't getting enough water, so I needed to come up with a way to water them. And so I took a, took a trash can, and you can think of it when you see these big trash cans. We'll put our lunch in the big trash cans uh, today. I took one of these big trash cans, like 45-gallon trash can or so, and about an inch off the bottom, maybe a half inch off the bottom, I drilled a quarter-inch hole, And then I ran drip irrigation line out from these two holes and put a drip line irrigation head on the end of it. And so what I had there was a way to water these trees, to gently water the trees as the water would leak out the bottom. So I'd fill it in the morning, come home at lunch, reposition it, fill it again. I was going to keep these trees alive. I'd fill it again. And then I'd come home from work and I'd move it one more time, fill it again, and the water would leak out. I called it the RNI, RNI. And I didn't patent it in case you want to borrow it. That's why I described it the way I did. RNI, Redneck Irrigator. <laughs> yeah, I invented it. And so I also have like a 20 foot PVC pipe coming off my air conditioning drain right now? Do you have one of those? Using that um, water coming off of the air conditioner. But anyway, redneck irrigator, and the idea is the water leaks out. I know some of you are going to use this. You're going to go home and do it. The water leaks out, and I tell you that story because really that's a good description of idolatry. When we read this text, we think, "Mm, not for me. I'm in the clear But really, idolatry is this subtle, sublime leaking out of what belongs to God going to other things. So this could be the glory of God, because I've told you before, everybody worships on Sunday morning. It's just some people worship in church. So it could be the glory and worship that is due to God leaking out to other things. It could be our dedication, our dependency, faith, trust leaking out to other things. It could be an addiction that has really caught somebody, and and that's leaking out. All this effort and dedication, which is due to God alone, going to something else qualifies as 
idolatry. And this is a different interpretation, say, than what we see in this passage in terms of we see an iron or metal figure and we see a wood figure. But I'm here to tell you that in Bernie, Texas, idolatry is alive and well. It takes the shape of being safe. Being safe is an idol. People are afraid of anything that would make them unsafe. And so safety is an idol as it robs people of obedience and dedication that is due to God alone. So safety. What about children? Oh, the old child-centered home. That's an idol. It robs God of the glory that is due to Him alone. So good things. I mean, I like safety. Children are great. Good things can, when they become ultimate, they become idols robbing, taking away from the glory and dedication and obedience that is due to God alone. So we've got family, children, um, safety, health is another one. People are obsessed and infatuated with their health. Ask a person who works out a lot, oh, tell me a little bit about your workout. Oh, man, you're going to get an earful, right? Perhaps some of this dedication and passion should run not just to exercise, but to God as well, and even more so. So I'm just listing here some potential idols uh, that we see here in Bernie, Texas, and of course money is a huge one. Uh, money, people are infatuated, uh, giving all their attention, all their effort to uh, money. And so money, materialism, success. Uh, next year, in 2024, you're going to see the idol of power on display in an election year. And so power is an idol. Being in control, uh, being healthy, being safe, these are all idols which take away the passion that we should have for following God. They potentially, are they good things? Absolutely. But when they become ultimate in our life, the good can rob God of the glory that he rightly deserves. And the way that happens, it's very sublime. It's very subtle. It just leaks out like the water in the RNI. It leaks out to others. Well, how do we guard ourselves from this kind of idolatry? I mean, we can't escape culture, can we? We can't live in isolation. We've got to function in the world that God has given to us. How can we, like Isaiah, stand separate from our culture and even name and call out the different idols that we see in love as we proclaim the hope of the gospel? How do we do this? How do we guard our soul? How do we guard our heart from giving way to the idols of our day. That's our subject today. And the first thing I'm going to tell you is we've got to revere only God. We've got to revere only God. And you'll see this in verses 6 through 8. And what I'm getting at here is if someone is worshiping an idol and this glory, obedience, dedication is leaking out to something else, someone greater has to come along to upset and move this idol to its rightful place, and that is namely God. So we revere only God as one of the greatest defenses. We worship Him who is the greatest to defend us 
from the lesser gods we see around us. And you see the greatness of God that we should revere only him in verses 6 through 8. What do I mean by revere? I mean a profound reverence that is reserved for God. I mean being in awe at the greatness and the majesty of who God is. We've talked about it before. It's having a theology equal to the truth that's declared in the Bible. And so we revere only God as a defense against the idolatry of our day. You see this in verse 6. Look how the titles for God are piled up here in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. God is a king. And that is in your face and in my face for a culture that's infatuated with autonomy, independence, and self. Don't you tell me what to do. Oh, God's going to tell you what to do. And he has every right to do that. Why? He created you. He formed you. He made you. He redeemed you. And so you see the greatness of God and his absolute grandeur on display in the title Lord, he's sovereign, he's the king of Israel, he rules and reigns, he is Israel's redeemer, he's the one who is powerful enough to save, he is the Lord of hosts, we've run into that title before, that's the power name of God because he is the commander-in-chief of the heavenly armies and can execute his will by force if necessary. And we're told here in second half of verse 6, God's speaking here, I am the first and the last. So God is declaring his eternality and that he is, he, he is able, and this is in contrast to the temporary idols we see of our day, and he says, besides me there is no God. So God has no peers. And even though idolatry is a competition, for the glory of God, for obedience, dedication, you understand that God is in a class absolutely by himself compared to these other gods. And so that follows what follows here in verse 7. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Now that makes sense to us Texans. Why? It ain't bragging if you can do it. It ain't bragging if it's the truth. And so God declares the truth about himself. You see, God is the ultimate authority on himself. And he's saying, if you got another God that can compare with me, set it before me. It's a dare. It is a dare. And look at the second half of verse 7. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what's to come and what will happen. And notice here, there's a shift in the tone of this passage in verse 8. Fear not, nor be afraid. We might look at that and say, oh, that doesn't really follow. Oh, no, it follows if you're a God worshiper. Because there is no need to fear when he is in control. There's no need. If you follow the King of Israel, the Lord of hosts, you have no need to fear, nor be afraid. God has declared it. Verse 8, you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? It's a rhetorical question that assumes the answer is in the negative. There is no rock. I know not 
any. And so God here has revealed his very character that shows and displays for us there is no comparison. God has no peers, and these idols should not be compared with God. He is absolutely the one and the only we should revere. I was out to lunch a couple weeks ago with uh, some church members, and we were, we enjoyed a great lunch, and the owner of the restaurant came by, and let me tell you, when people find out you're a pastor, it's one of three responses, okay? I'll just tell you, I've been at this a while. Conversation over, that's the first, <laughs> first one. Second one, and this is one I definitely, I come out for that one to, the, the second response is sharing of church hurt. And I take that seriously. You know, it might be somebody who was raised in a pastor's family and the, the pastor of the church wasn't treated well or something like this, or they were hurt or injured somehow in the church. And I always, I come out for that. I'm, I'm empathetic and I listen. So that's the second response. That kind of tugs at your heart because church hurt is hard, and some of you have experienced that. So first one, conversation over. Second response, church hurt, and I'm going to try to be kind. Third response, sharing of ignorance. Sharing of ignorance, which is basically just whatever I feel... Or, and I said it that way on purpose, whatever conjecture I have about faith, religion, the Bible, church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, anything that falls under that category, I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm going to throw it out there. And, and I also, I don't mind if the conversation ends. I come out for the church hurt to listen, to care, to invite um, but the sharing of ignorance, whew, I got a lot of training for that. And so this, in this particular instance, uh, this individual said, of the three major religions in the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they're basically all the same. And that all that matters is you practice and you're sincere. Last time I checked, Sincerity, you can be sincerely wrong about things. Even though your intentions are good. And of course, uh, some of you know, my dad was Muslim. And so I came out for that one. I said, you know, my dad was Muslim. And there's huge differences between Islam and Christianity. These, these two are two different things entirely different systems of faith and theology and they have they are not the same and what my encouragement to you is is that sometimes people share their ignorance and we ought to come out for that in loving and direct ways where we conflict with people over the exclusivity of who God is, and the wonder of Christianity. You know, you might have heard that analogy, oh, there's a mountaintop and God's on it, and you just have to kind of find a, a path 
to get to the top? Yeah, no. That isn't true at all. And people can be sincerely wrong. And it is our calling as Christians to go ahead and encounter that and call it out in love, to sort of fight past the, the ignorance and these assumptions and challenge people and encourage them to go deeper, to think deeper thoughts, and to uh, call on God in repentance and truth. And you can only do that if you're not subject to the idols of our, of our day. And so this idea, the exclusive right that God has for glory is something that we're encouraged to invite other people to. You know, in point of fact, Christianity and Islam have nothing to do with each other. They're entirely different. It's a false equivalence, logically. And of course, I thought of the perfect comment. You know, you always, are, are you that way? I always think of the perfect thing to say later. <laughs> and, and the perfect thing, thing to say would have been to say, well, this restaurant then, your fine establishment, is just like McDonald's. They're the same. Because that's what, if you say Christianity is the same as anything else, that's what you're doing. I thought of that later, <laughs> and I didn't get to use it, but I got it filed away. And maybe you have it filed away too. When people say it's all the same, step forward, be bold, trust God, and remind people, no, it's not. No, it's not. We have an awesome God. And we revere only him. So if we're going to guard our hearts, if we're going to guard against the idolatry of our day, which makes safety, health, children, family, success, money too important, we're not only going to have to revere only God, we're going to need to out and out reject all idols. And that's in the next part of the passage here, verses 9 through 20. And I mentioned it's this narrative with a, a tinge of absurdity to it. And we read kind of a summary in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. You know, it can be very unpopular. You can be very unpopular among your peers if you will not bow the knee at the idols that they worship. And you can feel very alone. But the confidence for us in God is that these idols ultimately are nothing, and they don't lead to a place of true delight which is profitable. In other words, there is vanity and futility associated with the idolatry. And we see this on display, so you get two idol makers here. Verse 12, you get the ironsmith. Verse 13, you get the carpenter. And you might, you know, if you work with metal or you're a woodworker, I mean, this hits home. It's, it's quite the description. And part of the purpose, how this functions, is if you look at the end of verse 12, it's not like this guy isn't sincere. You see, that's where the sincerity thing breaks down. Look, he becomes hungry. Verse 12, the ironsmith, he's hungry. His strength fails, he drinks no water, and he's faint. He's really going for it. He's passionate about it. 
But that doesn't matter. It still comes to nothing. And then the carpenter, likewise, he's going for it. And what we see is he's, look at all the verbs, starting in verse 13, of everything the carpenter is doing. And there's even sort of a contrast between there in verse 13. We read, he shapes it with planes. He shapes it into the figure of a man. Who's the other shaper? That's in verse 22, where God said, I formed you. Do you see the contrast here? The carpenter's doing his own forming. He's doing his own shaping, but it's nothing compared to what uh, God does. And so the carpenter, he's going for it too. He's cutting down cedars, verse 14, carefully choosing trees. How many of those who are woodworkers have carefully chosen uh, certain pieces of wood for, to make furniture or cabinet fronts? And you notice here the real problem is that he's using half of the wood for these ordinary purposes, and then half of the wood he's bowing down and worshiping. And, and we're meant to read this and say, oh, that is just so absurd. And then as soon as we utter that, we realize, oh, that's us. We do that. Anytime worship, dedication, obedience leaks out, we're doing the same thing. And we see in verse 18, they know not, nor do they discern. The functioning of an idol is very sublime and sometimes hidden from the idol worshiper. He doesn't apprehend, verse 18, he doesn't realize. Well, why is that? He can't see. Verse 18, for he has shut their eyes. God is able to shut the eyes and not allow him to discern the truth but the good news is God can open eyes and have him see the truth and apprehend what's going on. We read in verse 18, so that they cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment. That's a description of 2023, isn't it? Yeah, just wait till 2024 in the election. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment. Half of it I burned in the fire. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Wow. And that's what he does. It's the absurdity of idolatry when God has called us to worship only him. Verse 20, he feeds on ashes. That doesn't sound appetizing. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? You know, there was a North Carolina man I read about, and he, they had just finished celebrating uh, his, his kid's birthday kind of at a park area, and that he kind of stayed after he cleaned up. And he got the GPS going, and he followed the GPS. He was following the GPS, and he followed it off a 20-foot ravine. Because that's where it told him to go. All the locals, he wasn't familiar with this area, all the locals knew that 10 years ago, a decade ago, that bridge had washed out. Would we say after he plunges... 20 feet 
in his car off this ravine, would we say, well, yeah, he was sincere? At least he was sincere. Following these GPS directions, if you and I would have discernment and apprehension to be able to stand, as Isaiah does, apart from this culture, we must reject the idols of our day, stay opposed to them, and worship and dedicate our life only to God. He is worthy for all our worship and all our dedication. And so we revere only Him, we reject all idols, and then finally, last point here in verses 21 and 22, we remember and return. What do we do if we're caught up in idolatry, if we've made that which is important, ultimate in our life, how do we get out of this? Well, verse 21, remember these things. Well, what are the these things? Oh, it's the remembering everything that has come before. What's come before? The futility of idols, the absurdity of it, the foolishness of it has come before, but as well, the greatness of who God is. The antidote to idolatry is God's greatness and how we should revere only Him. Likewise, so we remember these things, and then notice here, God calls out His people by name. O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. And then He says again, I formed you. This is the kind of love that a parent has for a kid. Instead of I formed you, it's what? I raised you. You are my servant. Remembering that proper position that we have before a holy and awesome God, we're the servants. He is not our servant. We are his servants. You, and then there's this assurance. This is really how the gospel comes across to us in verses 21 and 22. You will not be forgotten by me. Even though they have behaved this way, even though they've given to idols that which only belongs to God, His glory, God says He will not forget us. And look at verse 22. The good news of the gospel is this. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me. Oh, that rich invitation that no matter when you and I find ourselves in a distant, far country, when we find ourselves in the midst of worshiping an idol or we've made something too important in our life and the glory and the worship and the dedication that is due to God alone has leaked out to other things, what does God say to that? Return to me. That we can confess, repent, and come back to Him. For I have redeemed you, God declares. We don't save ourselves in Christianity. He has rescued us. And so you see there, how are we going to combat? How are we going to stand apart from the spirit of this age with its priorities, its, its obsession with safety, health, materialism, money, security, and success? How do we do that? Well, we revere only God. Look how great He is there in verses 6, 7, and 8. We reject all idols by His grace. Rejecting all idols. And then we remember His greatness and all that He's done in redeeming us. And we return to Him. So we're invited to return by recognizing God's greatness and remembering 
his grace to reject the idols of our day. Let's pray together. Lord, how we ask that indeed you would help us to revere you, that we would have a deep reverence, awe, as we worship you. We pray you would make us passionate worshipers, passionate followers of you as we reject all idols. May the glory that you see in our lives not run towards lesser things, lesser gods. Whenever that's happening, we pray you would help us to apprehend it, open our eyes, let us discern it, that we might remember your greatness and return to you alone, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.